Hey everybody, it's Britt, lead pastor at Sunridge. Welcome or welcome back to our teaching podcast. You know, we are on a mission here at Sunridge to help people find and follow Jesus. We believe in the good news that Jesus welcomes all regardless of how far you feel from God. That means we're a great starting point to explore Christianity or to sink your spiritual roots deep as a devoted Jesus follower. If you'd like to know more about us, just check out our website at sunridgechurch.org. And of course, we'd love to have you drop in anytime for a visit to learn and worship along with us. And now, here's our teaching for this week. Can we thank our worship and our tech team for getting this going this morning? And then I have a public apology. My brain is all over the place, so much so that yesterday when I texted Sweet Renee a handful of things about today, I asked her to arrive here at 8.50. You guys, that is an hour earlier than Renee was supposed to be here. And so Renee, I'm sorry to you, I'm sorry to you Micah, I'm sorry to you Peter, because they rushed out of their house to get here at 8.50, and uh, that was an hour early. So, thank you so much for doing that for us. If you are online preparing your seven-layer dip for the Super Bowl or your, what is that, buffalo cauliflower, good for you. You can continue to do that as we share. And for the rest of you who are in here in person, I hope that whatever you're doing this afternoon, perhaps enjoying those things that your friends are currently preparing for you, that you have a great Sunday afternoon. But before we get to all of that, my name is Jed, and it's a privilege to serve as one of our pastors on staff. And today I have the opportunity to take us through the next portion of our series where we're studying through the Gospel of Mark. We're in chapter 6, and Renee just read the first 13 or so verses of that chapter. But before we dive into that, I was thinking the other day about how when I was a little kid, I, for whatever reason, liked to draw. And I don't like to draw much anymore, but one of the things that I love to draw outside of the wild stuff that would come in my brains were actually Looney Tune characters. I loved the Looney Tunes. How many fans out there of the Looney Tunes? Yes, thank you. So my favorite character to draw of the Looney Tunes was the Tasmanian Devil. Do you guys remember Taz? I just, I just, I loved seeing him whip around in that tornado torpedo and then he'd just blow things apart and at the very end of it, he'd do that. We'd be like, <laughs> and basically I think my parents, when they saw me, they believed I embodied him and truly I did feel like he was my spirit animal. Um, and so I was thinking about the Tasmanian devil, not uh, for many other reasons outside of the fact that in 1994, when I was a little boy, in my hometown of San Diego, I got to watch my very first Super Bowl that I, I at least can remember. And you're thinking, what in the world does the Tasmanian Devil have to do with the Super Bowl? Well, at that time in 94, if any of you remember and are from San Diego, your heart still hurts because it was the one time that you got to have the opportunity to see your Chargers play the team that I ended up really, really appreciating the San Francisco 49ers, who are, of course, playing in the Super Bowl today against the Chiefs. I, that day, will never forget the very first time I watched a football player, a running back, take a handoff and 
leap over the offensive and the defensive line into the end zone. I don't know if you guys remember that day, but that was the very first and one of the only few points that the Chargers scored that day. It was, it was their first touchdown, but it is, it is embedded in my mind. I can still remember seeing, and I don't even know who that running back was, jumping over the line and, and tumbling into the end zone. And, and that Super Bowl left a very great impression on me, not just for that moment. I got to see Steve Young, this left-hand quarterback, who ended up being my favorite football player of all time. When I was 12, I got a Steve Young number eight jersey. I mean, I loved the 49ers growing up because they demolished the San Diego Chargers. I was that kid. I was that kid. Well, several years later after that, Super Bowl, because of a fundraiser at school, I ended up getting my very own San Francisco 49ers themed Tasmanian Devil football. Yeah, that was a long way to get there. Okay, I'm telling you, I'm not making this story up. I've, I went so far as to seeing if I could find this item, so I googled gold Tasmanian Devil San Francisco 49ers football, and this showed up on eBay. Just, just a couple weeks ago. And so if any of you would like to purchase this for me, <laughs> uh, it's out of stock. I checked again last night. It is out of stock. Well, here's the deal. Remember how I said that moment of jumping into the end zone was something that was embedded in my mind? It was so impressed upon me. I can remember this day. I don't remember what day it was. It was a Thursday afternoon. Let's just pretend. I, I took my football and I lined up by our side yard gate. You know the side yard gate that you are supposed to walk in you to get the trash? The trash was my responsibility, so I was very familiar with that walkway. I took my football. I backed all the way up to the gate. And about 10 or so yards in front of me were these massive bushes. Massive. And I thought, you know what? It's my time to shine. There was no one else there, you guys. No one. And I remember commentating about how Benimton grabs the... And I started running. And I... I do not know why I did this, you guys. I, I jumped as high as I could. As high as I could. And you remember the Looney Tunes, like how Wiley e. Coyote sometimes would be chasing after, and he's like, realizes midair, like, Roadrunner, is that who it is? Midair, I have a canyon underneath me. I jumped over that thing, and I turned my shoulder. I landed so hard, so hard on the grass, and no crowd of refs in cheers. <laughs> Nothing. The sad little boy in San Diego with his gold San Francisco's 49ers football walked into the house with a hurt shoulder. And that's the story. I mean, truly, it, I, I remember jumping, hitting the ground and thinking, well, that didn't go as planned. And I walked inside the house. And the reason why I'm telling you this story is because for many of us, when we come to passages of scripture that sound really, really incredible and inspiring, just like the one that Renee just read. I think that it makes perfect sense that we want to gather up, huddle up, and say, that, that's the game plan. Let's go do that. So can you imagine if today 
I said, all right, my friends, after hearing that passage of scripture, I'm going to count us off one, two, right? One, two, one, two, one, two, one, two. And all the ones go to this side of the room and all the twos go to that side of the room. And then when you are on that side of the building, I'd like for you to pair up with someone who you do not know because I split you up into a motley crew of people. And then your goal is to walk outside of this building and you're not to come back until you have accomplished wonderful, wonderful things in the name of Jesus. And you don't get to bring anything with you but a stick that looks like the one my grandfather walked around the neighborhood with every morning for whatever reason. I don't know who he was fighting off. And then you can bring, oh, nothing else but the ugly Crocs on your feet. And then go to the surrounding neighborhoods and uh, knock on people's doors and see if they'll welcome you into their homes. But if they don't, take your Crocs, shake it at them, and leave. How many of you would, would return to Sunday's Community Church after that? I think I would get fired, but it would be like, what were you thinking? And if I said, well, Rev, this is like, it's right there. This is what we are supposed to do. I don't imagine many of us, again, would want to come back and yet for whatever reason, we might not go to those extremes or lengths. We do take so much of our scripture and we feel this pressure to go out and to replicate and to do as is described, perhaps thinking, well, that's what's prescribed. You've heard descriptive versus prescriptive, perhaps. And so I want to just state this very clearly before we, we get further along. If you are nervous about the passage for today, the goal of this is not to replicate this model. That's not the purpose. And it's not a fill in your blank, but let's go back a few chapters to Mark chapter 3. And in Mark chapter 3, verse 13, he, Jesus, went up the mountain and called to him those whom he wanted, and they came to him. And he appointed 12, whom he also named apostles, to be with him and to be sent out to proclaim the message and to have authority to cast out demons. And the reason why I'm bringing us back a few chapters is to show us that at this point in Jesus's ministry, when we find ourselves in chapter six, it's not like suddenly he decided, oh wait, I have this idea. I'm going to, I'm going to pair them up and then send them out. When Jesus called the 12, he knew at that point in time that he was going to purpose them to be an extension of himself so that they would go out and be messengers of the good news of the kingdom. He wasn't going to go out and just do this by himself. But if we hop back to Mark chapter 6, if we return to the text that we have for ourselves today, I want us to read right after where Renee stopped. Remember, she stopped when they cast out many demons and anointed with oil many who were sick and cured them. In reference to those 12 disciples, those 12 apostles, meaning those sent ones. But listen, in verse 14, it's up on the screens, King Herod heard of it. What did he hear of? What did King Herod hear of? This is the part where you share. <laughs> Gee, 
Jesus. <laughs> His miracles. King Herod heard about something happening in his territory that was disturbing to him. And most of us, again, will think, well, he must be hearing about what the disciples are doing, and that is what he hears. But listen to how John Mark, the author of this gospel, writes it. King Herod heard of it, for Jesus' name had become known. Some are saying John the baptizer has been raised from the dead, and for this reason, these powers are at work in him. But others said it is Elijah, and others said it is a prophet, like one of the prophets of old. But when Herod heard of it, he said, catch this, John, whom I beheaded, has been raised. John, whom I have beheaded, has been raised. Now, just a few things to catch here. And I tried to get your attention by asking you a question when we were reading it, but only a few of us answered. He heard that something was happening in the region where he was, the Tetrarch, the client king, where he was responsible to carry out the governance of this place for the Romans. Did John Mark say that he heard about all these awesome disciples and all the wonderful things that they were doing. Is that how it's recorded? No. Jesus' name, his name, Jesus' name was becoming known. In other words, these disciples, these apostles who were being sent out were living out in a way that their teacher, Jesus, his name was becoming more and more known. And Herod is so disturbed by Jesus' name becoming known, it would have felt perhaps like a threat to his own security and power that he starts to have these very odd Thoughts. They don't even seem like something that you would in your right mind think. What does he think has happened? Thank you, Patricia. He thinks that John the Baptist, whom he had already, catch that, already beheaded, had somehow been raised from the dead. In other words, this movement was generating so much energy that he thought surely only something so supernatural could have sparked this. And so if you read from verses 17 all the way to 29, what you have here is this story, this pericope, this cutout that is actually a flashback. And you have to remember, it's a flashback. So chronologically, when you're reading it, you might just miss that small detail that John the Baptist is already dead. He's already been beheaded. And the story that falls, verses 17 through 29, that story of John's head being brought out on a platter, okay, that had happened prior to the disciples being sent. Are we clear on that? That's so, so, so important. So then we ought to ask ourselves this question to frame what we're talking about. What happened? What happened before Jesus decided to send the apostles out? What happened? 
what happened before this. I'm going to give you your two next fill in the blanks really, really quickly, and we're going to talk about it, okay? So what really happened before these disciples are sent out is that Jesus had experienced two significant things. The first, he experienced significant rejection, right? And then the second, it's your next fill in the blank, is Jesus experienced significant loss, Rejection and loss. And it's so easy to run past those things because we get caught up in this narrative of the disciples going out and doing wonderful, wonderful things, powerful things. That again, we miss rejection and loss. If you go back to chapter 3 of Mark, which is where we started after Jesus calls the disciples to himself. We find this scene where people begin to think, understandably, that Jesus is out of his mind, beside himself. In fact, in verse 20, after the listing out of the twelve, the crowd came together again so that they could not even eat. And when his family heard it. They went out to restrain him, for people were saying he has gone out of his mind. That word in the Greek for restrain, it is, it's one of the most forceful words that can be used for trying to hold someone back. In other words, without knowing entirely if his family, it's hard to differentiate in the text, whether or not his family if they were concerned that he had lost his mind, they had seen enough from the crowds they thought, we need to hold this boy back. Okay? He's gone a little taz. Stop him. Hold him. And in fact, the religious leaders speak of Jesus and they say that by the power of him sending out demons, he himself is possessed. I mean, it's just crazy talk. Wildness. And I don't have it up on the screen here, but later on, his mother and his brothers came and standing outside, they sent to him and they called him. Uh, again, they tried to hold him back. He continues, and so they're like, Jesus, please stop. What are you doing? And after this scene where Jesus continues to go out and teach, and heal. By the time we get to Mark chapter 6, a fair amount of time has passed, and Jesus has decided that he's going to take the 20 to 25 mile trek away from the shores of Capernaum by the Sea of Galilee, and he's going to do something that you would think, you would think would result in a hero's welcome. Where does he go? He goes back home. Now, in Mark's gospel, and we talked about this early on, home base for Jesus was Capernaum. So there are other instances where it says that he's home, and he's really not in Nazareth, but he's in Capernaum. But we know that he's actually in Nazareth, out in the sticks, this place that you should not want to stay at, this small town up in the hills, because it says that he is in his hometown, and his disciples followed him there. And that's 
what we read this morning. It says that they what? Took offense at him. And then Jesus said to them, prophets are not without honor except in their hometown and among their kin and in their own house. And he could do no deed of power there except that he laid his hands on a few sick people and cured them. I mean, he had just done wild, incredible things. Are you caught off balance a little bit by the fact that Jesus isn't able? Do you see that in the text again in verse 5? He could do no deed of power there except that he laid hands on a few sick people and cured them. You're like, well, that's pretty good. (laughs) That's pretty good. I mean, if I could do that, that'd be pretty cool. Uh, The idea that's being expressed there is that in order for Jesus to perform a miraculous deed of power, particularly in his hometown, he would need to have something reciprocated. He'd need for there to be real connection. He'd need for his people to take him in. But look at verse 6. This is really what's crazy. He was amazed. Amazed at their unbelief. And a lot of us might struggle to think about Jesus being surprised here, but there's no... There's no missing it in the original language here that when it says that Jesus was amazed, it wasn't like he was like, oh, well, that's interesting. (laughs) They don't believe me. I'll just go off and heal elsewhere. No. The word there truly, in its positive sense, is marvel and wonder and awe. But in its secular usage in the Greek, we also see that when you are amazed or in awe, there can be a harsh, critical nature to it. A dumbfoundedness, a frustration, an anger, a critical spirit that accompanies not being believed. And that is the rejection that Jesus faces in his hometown. So when you hear him say that a prophet has honor everywhere else except for in his hometown, don't see that as Jesus just tossing out this neat little statement for us to remember that has sentiment of things that the old prophets themselves would say. And he's saying it pretty clearly. I've been rejected at home. And if you won't receive me here, I'll, I'll go on my way. Any of you ever experienced rejection before? Anyone here feel like the black sheep of the family? An outsider? Maybe like you don't belong even inside of this church? You never felt like that? What about that lost piece? We hear the story of John the Baptist and his beheading, and it's like, well, that's a really freaky story, but let's just keep reading to hear about the 5,000. I want to take you to the parallel account in Matthew chapter 14, because it really gives us just the inside look here is is mind-blowing to me. 
So in Matthew chapter 14, and in verse, or in chapter 13, right before you have the hometown scene in Nazareth, but in chapter 14, you have a, a shortened, condensed version of Herod beheading John the Baptist. And in verse 11, grotesquely, the head was brought on a platter and given to the girl who was the daughter of Herod and Herodias. There was familial incest there. It's this whole gnarly story. But either way, she brought it to her mother, Herodias, because her mom had requested the head of John the Baptist. And in verse 12, his disciples, not Jesus' disciples, but his disciples, John the Baptist's disciples, came and took the body and buried it. Then they went and told Jesus. Okay? John the Baptist has been beheaded. Do you remember the ways that Jesus talked about John the Baptist? Are you familiar? He talked about how there was no one like him. I mean, this is his cousin. More than just the forerunner, this is someone in his family who prepared the way for Jesus himself to go out and do his thing. He has deep ties to this man whose head has just been put on a platter. Can you imagine, any of you, what would happen? And, and maybe, and I'm so sorry, I have met a handful of people in this life who have been victims of a person in their life on the receiving end of homicide. It, I just cannot even imagine. John the Baptist's head has been put on a platter. His disciples take his beheaded body. They bury it. They go to Jesus, tell him what has happened. And look at verse 13 of Matthew chapter 14. Never forget it, my friends. Now, when Jesus heard this, he withdrew from there in a boat to a deserted place by himself. rejection and loss. He was insanely busy at that time. But when the people in your own home think you've gone nuts, and then someone that you grew up with, maybe you played with, someone who was a ministry partner, someone that baptized you, was a part of your spiritual journey, has their head beheaded. Yeah, going off to be by yourself sounds like a good deal. You know, Mark's gospel narrates it just a little bit differently. If you jump to verse 30 of Mark chapter 60, the apostles gathered around Jesus and told him all that they had done and taught. And I want you to catch that in, in the upcoming section, which we won't get to today, this is your next fill in the blank. It's, it's pretty remarkable. After all of that loss and rejection, Jesus does something pretty crazy. Jesus doesn't make it about himself. You know what he does? He hears about what the disciples have been doing. He takes time to hear their stories. 
And I didn't put this up on the screens, but it's so, so special in verse 30 when he said to them, come away to a deserted place all by yourselves and rest a while. Jesus had been by himself, the disciples find him, and he says, you know what, let's, let's get out of this place and let's have you rest. I kind of wonder, like were any of the disciples thinking like, hey Jesus, how are you doing right now? Hey Jesus, you uh, hear from your family again? Or hey Jesus, I... I'm really sorry about your cousin. I would hope so, but I don't know. You know, I really don't know. And in this feeding of the 5,000, what's so, so special about this is Jesus has taken the disciples away and all the crowds find him and, and then it's, he's just so moved. And so, Here's, here's your very next fill in the blank. That this really, when we read this, this is about whether or not you and I are going to see the compassion and the empathy of the one who sins. And I'll give you the rest of that. But again, when you read this passage, you can think it's just about the disciples going off to do wild things, or you can really see it. This is about if we see, whether or not we see the compassion and empathy of the one who sends. And the reason why I'm emphasizing whether or not we see Jesus here is if, again, if, you, if you're reading this closely, if you immerse yourself in the narrative, if you think about who Jesus is when he is in that deserted place and all the crowds Come. He has just made it about the disciples, but then he is moved by compassion because all these people who have no idea what he's just experienced, they have no clue. They have no clue. They're ready to have him do what they want him to do for them. Compassion and empathy. You know, I love that the earliest Christians started picking up on how remarkable Jesus was. Look at Hebrews chapter 4. It's beautiful. Since then we have a great high priest who passed through the heavens. Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast to our confession. Let's not give up. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but we have one in every respect who has been tested as we are yet without sin. Man, he understands. He gets it. He lived it. Look at verse 16. So let us therefore approach the throne of grace with boldness so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Y'all have that parenthetical part open. This is about whether or not we see the one who has compassion and empathy, not just to send us, but who joins us. Who joins us. Here's your second and last fill in the blank. You see, when we're thinking about all of this, you know what this is really about? If we're going to cross the cultural bridge and think about ourselves today and step outside the narrative, this really is about how we view and see our journey of discipleship. 
as people who really are sent by God into this world. The way that we see ourselves in it really, really matters because if we think that we're sent out into this world just to be a part of big, incredible, amazing things so that we can feel good about ourselves and tell our battle stories about the wonderful things that we have accomplished and done, then we have really, really missed it because quite frankly, life doesn't always feel like that. You know what I mean? I'm sure a lot of us have great spiritual stories and wonderful things that have happened in our life, but those same disciples who went out and did wonderful stuff, we know how the story goes. And if you don't, let me just share really briefly, by the time that Jesus is going to experience his ultimate rejection and his ultimate loss, those people who were all about him, they're all gone. They ain't there no more. They're gone. And yet to pull us back toward the beauty of our spiritual heritage, let me take you to Matthew chapter 28, the most famous of sendings and commissionings. Jesus calls them up to the mountain, the 11. In Matthew 28, verse 16, it says, Now the 11 disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain to which Jesus had directed directed them. When they saw him, they worshiped him, but some doubted. I'm telling you guys, the disciples at Jesus' resurrection, even after, were still doubting. I'm going to invite up the worship team as we begin to close out this service. And the reason why I brought up that passage of the Great Commission and us seeing the disciples being sent out by Jesus after his resurrection with that doubt is so that you can be reminded that if you're hearing a message about being sent out into this world and for whatever reason, you're not feeling super excited about that, because maybe you've been to church for a long, long time and the worship songs don't really do much for you or you hear messages and it's like, I've heard that before. Or maybe because you have a loved one in your family who you just lost and so the idea of Going out to tell the world about Jesus doesn't feel that exciting. Or you were just at the doctor's office and you got information that made your heart sink. Or maybe you weren't invited to a Super Bowl party today and you're wondering, what the heck am I going to do? And we can nervous chuckle about all sorts of things, you guys. But to think that as Christians, we're going to make the biggest difference in the world because people are just hearing about all the wonderful things we're accomplishing is inaccurate. You want to know what would make a difference? If we realize that Jesus sent out the first disciples when they still weren't sure. I mean, they should have been real sure. That is our spiritual heritage, you guys. In 2024, Sun Ridge Community Church and every single congregation and gathering of believers in this big globe of eight billion people 
They are there because the Spirit of God and the love of Christ moved a bunch that started with a small who still had their questions and their doubts. And what's crazy to me in the Greek, uh, it actually doesn't have the word some, it just says they doubted. For whatever reason, every single English translation that I found just tempers it still. It's so weird. It'd be so much more impactful, I think, if the world saw that those of us who are being sent out still could say, you know, I do believe, but there's a lot that I still struggle with. And you'll see that later on in Mark's gospel. But what about the words of the apostle Paul, someone who wasn't one of the first ones who didn't get to be with Jesus early on. Look at what he says. He says that I want to know Christ, in verse 10, the power of his resurrection and the sharing of his sufferings by becoming like him in his death, if somehow I may attain the resurrection from the dead. Not that I've already obtained this or have reached the goal, but I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus made me his own. Beloved, I do not consider that I've made it my own, but this one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the heavenly call of God in Christ Jesus. He says, I want to know it, not I know it. He says, I want to get it, not that I've got it. Do you see the difference there, church, with being sent out with that type of message? And if you don't think... That's accurate. Look at verse 15. Let those of us then who are mature be of the same mind. And if you think differently about anything, this too God will reveal to you. In other words, I'm sorry, you guys. If you think that your just confidence about having all that set and just knowing, 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 knowing is going to make a difference in the world, the apostle Paul himself says, let me just encourage you to think about that a little bit differently. So what can we do with a message like this? Here's your very last fill in the blank and then I'll head off this stage. What I'm gonna encourage us to do this week and in the near future is to pair up like the disciples did. But instead of just going out to tell that perfect testimony that makes it sound like night, life is all wonderful now, would you consider exchanging stories about the journey, but especially about where you are right now? And if you're in a place right now that doesn't sound like it would make the front page news because of wonderful things that God's accomplishing in your life, but you're, you're, you're struggling in any way, would, would you encourage a person around you? Let's stand and worship together. Hey everybody, it's Britt again. Thanks for listening. If you need something, if you have a question, or you'd just like us to pray for you, you can reach us through email, info at sunridgechurch.org. We hope you'll listen in again next week, but in the meantime, keep helping people find and follow Jesus.